0: Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. Hello, fellow geeks. I hope 2017 has been treating you kind. Back in April, as you may remember from episode 22, I attended the 2017 Writers of the Future Awards. One of the judges was Nancy Cress. Author of 27 novels, three books on writing, and many, many short stories, she's won six Nebulas and two Hugo Awards. Later that month, I managed a phone interview with her, where we talked about her writing process, the differences between science fiction and fantasy, and her advice to new writers.
1: This is Nancy Kress, and I'm a science fiction writer.
0: I'm familiar with your work, and I read your your bio and all that, but if we can kind of start out with... In a way, kind of your origin story, what made you first start deciding (laughs) you wanted to write? You know, was it a specific idea? Was it just that you've always liked writing? That kind of stuff.
1: No, I kind of stumbled into writing. And I know that sounds strange, but I was a fourth grade teacher. I had worked for four years teaching, and then I married and had my children. And when I was pregnant with my second child, we lived way out in the country. And there were no other women my age at home during the day. They had all gone back to work. We had one car, and my then-husband took it to work, and he was taking an MBA in the evening, so he took classes, and frequently he stayed downtown um, to do that. And I was alone with a toddler and a difficult pregnancy, and I was going nuts. And I started writing, well, the toddler was napping to have something to do that didn't involve Sesame Street. <laughs> But I didn't I never planned on, on taking it seriously. And I would write stories and send them out and they would come back. And I would send them out again and they would come back again. And then after a year, one of them sold to a now defunct magazine called Galaxy. And the reason it sold, I did not know this at the time, is that Galaxy was on the verge of bankruptcy and had stopped paying its writers. So everybody who was clued into the loop here had stopped sending the material. And I was not clued into the loop. I sold true stories before I knew it existed, or fandom existed, or conventions existed, or any of that. So i they took my story, and then they promptly went bankrupt. And I wanted my $105 for my first sale. And it took me three years of writing letters to the publisher before he finally gave up and sent me a check for my $105. After about a year... The second story sold, and then after another year, a third one, and then it began to pick up after that. And by that time, I was really committed, but
0: it was not planned. Well, a, a little bit more into that first story was it that you did you have a specific idea in your head? Were you just like trying to journal and then realized that it would make a good story? You know what what in, you know what made you go? You know, yeah, you were trying to do something other that than Sesame Street. It sold but... or
1: the first story I wrote.
0: The first story you wrote.
1: The first story I ever wrote. Um, I had always read science fiction, but I had always read everything. Um, I'm a, I am was an English major, and my master's work was on Jane Austen. So it's kind of surprising that when I started to write, it came out science fiction. But it did. And I must have, I don't remember which the first story I wrote was, but I, had, I must have had some sort of an idea. And the stories were not very good. What happened is that I would just sit down, as many beginning writers do, and just sort of spew out the story as it came to me, whatever came to me in my head. And they didn't sell because they were not, they didn't really have a coherent structure. For me, what made the difference between those stories that did not sell and the stories that finally did begin to sell was when I learned to write in scenes. When I learned that the basic unit of fiction is not the word and it's not the sentence, it's the scene. And that if you know what a scene is about and why it's in the story, and scenes can only have two purposes. They either deepen characterization, they advance the plot, and ideally they do both. And if you know that and you write a scene with an orientation in the beginning and then the scene and then a sort of little rise in tension at the end, then that's how you structure stories. And when this finally... I know it sounds very basic and simple, but there's a difference between reading it and knowing it all the way down to your bones. When it finally dawned on me all the way down to my bones that this is the way stories were written and read, then I began to sell.
0: Well, and um, I know it probably varies depending on the story. As a writer for myself, uh, myself I know that it's my case. Uh, but typically, do you usually have the characters first or the plot first, or does it change every time?
1: I have a character in a situation. For instance, when I wrote Beggars in Spain, on the novella, I knew I wanted to write about a woman starting with her childhood who was genetically engineered to not need to sleep. So that much came to me. I don't have the whole plot. I almost never have the whole plot. But if I have a character and a situation, then I can go forward from there and see what develops. I kind of write to find out what the character is going to do and where the
0: plot is going to go well and that was something we talked about at the writers of the future event i had asked if you were a planner or if you you made it up as you went along you you used the phrase you were a pantser <laughs> which i like yes i think
1: i think gardner does one than a death phrase but it means basically i write that to seat of
0: my pants. Yes. and um i'm actually more familiar with your work as as a fantasy writer more than a science fiction writer because i i tend to go oh,
1: that's very early work <laughs> you must have been reading.
0: Um, do you have a preference between them, or is it just, you know, whatever comes to you?
1: I almost never write fantasy now. I'm, I'm much more interested in science fiction now than much more interested in science. That kind of grew over time. My first three novels were fantasy, and then I got an idea I wanted to write a science fiction, and then slowly I eased into it. And as I went on, the novels got, became harder and harder SF with more and more accurate it carefully extrapolated science i don't know why but that's how it
0: went well and i know that there's uh, there's all uh, you know lots of great uh, explanations out there between the difference but in your personal opinion what makes fantasy different from science fiction
1: science fiction takes the world as we know it and replaces one or more elements with something that is if not scientifically accurate at least scientifically plausible fantasy takes the world as we know it and replaces one or more elements with magic. It doesn't attempt to justify it by way of science. And in some cases, the effects can be the same. If you have a wizard on a hilltop and he transports me to another hilltop 60 miles away by waving his wand, that's magic, and it's fantasy. But if I walk into one of Larry Niven's jump shift and my molecules are disassembled and beamed 60 miles away to another jump shift transfer booth on another hilltop and then reassembled the same effect has happened but one has done it with a quasi-scientific explanation and the other one has done it with magic and that makes the difference
0: well and as you said science fiction is is you know at least plausible scientifically if not you know you know, ludicrous in terms of some of the wilder stuff out there. How much science do you, you like, research or make sure that you, and do you even, you know, do you worry about making sure how accurate it is?
1: It depends on the book and on the on the story. Some, st- only a minute of hand-waving that isn't even really plausible will do, especially for a short story. But sometimes, as in my novel, for instance, Stinger, which is about a genetically altered form of malaria, I'm very careful to work it out in meticulous and plausible detail. So it depends on the kind of effect I want to achieve and the kind of subject that I'm working with. Awesome. Um, And I have to to do a lot of research because I'm not scientifically trained, so mm -hmm. I have to do a lot.
0: Do you have a favorite go-to book or website or or something that you go to for a lot of your research, or just it it depends?
1: Well, I write about genetic engineering a lot. And I have read a lot of books on genetic engineering. And when I'm writing specifically about bioengineered pathogens, for instance, I will go to the CDC's website and look up the morbidity and mortality rate to find out who's dying of what where and and take that, that kind of information. But there's a lot of information out there if you look at reputable sites, depending on what it is that you want to research.
0: And um, in terms of your your day-to-day process, uh, again, I'm sure it it depends on what you're working on, but what kind of schedule do you usually uh, do in terms of your writing? If I'm not traveling,
1: I have a pretty rigid schedule. I get up in the morning very early. I'm a morning person. (laughs) And I have about half an hour worth of having my first cup of coffee, letting the dog out, making one move in all the chess games I'm playing online. And then I make a second cup of coffee and I go sit at the computer and I work. And I work on writing in the morning. Usually that's between, oh, somewhere between 6 and 11 in the morning. And for a couple hours, several hours. And then in the afternoon, when I'm not as fresh and not as focused, I'll do research and galleys and business email. And if I'm teaching, then I might be critiquing student manuscripts. But the fiction comes first and it has to be morning because I'm a morning person. On the other hand, my husband, who can't remember his own name until he's had three cups of coffee and it's noon, always writes in the
0: afternoon. (laughs) That's his better time. I don't know if you're familiar with the Right to Write, Julia Cameron's book, uh, but she talks about refilling the well. Do you give yourself, you know, days off so you can kind of refresh your, uh, refill the well? Um, When I finish a
1: piece, I'll sometimes take four or five days off, yeah. I'm doing that right now. I've been traveling a lot, a very lot. And I just finished um, Toastmistressing Northwest Con for four days. The weekend before that, I was at Writers of the Future, and the weekend before that, I was in New York um, teaching. And it's been just nonstop. I taught in Beijing for two weeks in January. And it's just everything has been nonstop. So I'm taking the week off, and I'm doing my spring cleaning which is a nice change because it's so physical and it's a nice change from from mental and I will probably on Sunday um, get
0: back to work. Hey, this is John vice president of the horror writers association, and I am geeking out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. Have a go. You can find contents may vary the home of the geek out podcast on Facebook at facebook.com slash contents may vary. You can also follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr at the handle Angie F. Sutton. Be sure to give me a review over on iTunes or Stitcher. Finally, I have a newsletter. Be sure to sign up for it over at AngieFSutton.com. And now back to my interview with author Nancy Kress. To your teaching into the Writers of the Future Award, this is something we had talked about um, at the actual Writers of the Future. When you look at uh, you know, a student's work or, or an entry's work, what specifically are you looking for and, and how do you, you know, I judge I guess is the best word, but you know, what how do you guide these these writers? Well,
1: I teach with Walter John Williams, a two week intensive workshop. Um, a sort of mini clarion, but it's two weeks instead of six, called Taos Toolbox. And that's in Taos, New Mexico, every every summer. And we this year we have 18 students. And those manuscripts will be coming in two weeks before the workshop starts. And I will look at one every afternoon. And I go through, and I first I read it for content. And then I will go through and I will line edit it. And then I will write a critique. And the critique will focus on such basic elements of fiction as, does the plot make sense? Is the pacing good? Have you spent way too much long time on the setup and then crammed all the action into the last four pages, which doesn't work? Um, Is the character believable? Is what the character does grow out of the person that you've shown us that that character is? Is the climax bringing together the forces that you've set up in this story? Um, is it interesting? Is the idea logical? Are you even if it's if it's magic, is it is it consistent? Is your magic system consistent so that people aren't just able to do anything that they want anytime they want with magic, which is never really satisfying? So there's a lot of different structural and characterization elements that I'm looking at when I write my critiques for these stories, and then. In class, we do them in a clarion format where the students get a couple minutes to each respond because it's important that authors hear what their future readers will will say. And then Walter and I will do much more detailed critiques.
0: One of the things that I know I've come across, it's kind of a writer's block question, but not. um, How do you keep yourself from being, you know, um, overwhelmed and feeling burnt out? Uh, There was a while when I was trying to write every day and it got to be, more like a job unless which, yes, it's a job, but you know what I mean. It was, it felt, it wasn't something I wanted to do. And so I had to kind of take a break from that. Do you ever have that happen? And if so, how do you deal with it?
1: The only times that that has happened that I haven't wanted to work on something, it's a strong indication to me that the story took a wrong turn. Because when the story is going well, I want to work on it. Um, I'm interested in it. and And I like doing it. If I find myself reluctant for two or three days to sit down with something, that tells me that something's wrong with this piece. And I need to go back to the last place where I was excited about writing it and replot from there because my unconscious subconscious is telling me, nope, you took a wrong turn. Really, I don't get burnt out, though, um, because I like writing. And there's so many interesting ideas and interesting characters that – I don't really have writer's block per se, which is an overused term, incidentally. Classic writer's block does not mean that you can't think of anything to write. Classic writer's block means that you're in the middle of something and you're so overwhelmed with anxiety that you can't finish it. But a reluctance to sit down and write, or I don't have an idea to write, or I can't find the time to write, none of those are really writer's block. Those are needy to get your head where it is to work. But writer's block refers to a very specific psychological problem that has to do with overwhelming
0: anxiety right yeah well, that's why I was like it's not really writer's block but it's kind of writer's block tangential <laughs> <laughs> something like that yeah um, in terms of your other daily habits do you I, I know some writers like to leave off when they know where the writers going where the story's going so the next day they have something to go off Do you do stuff like that or do you have something else that you know to, so you know, When you start the next day. That's exactly
1: what I do. That's exactly what I do. I I stop when I know what's going to be coming up next, because it makes it easier to get back into it the next morning. And And in fact, the times when I have the most difficulty is when I don't know what's going to come next. Right now, for instance, I have about three or four possible ways that I could start the next chapter of the book I'm working on. And I haven't chosen which one I want. And as a result, very little got to, done today. I noodled around with a couple different ideas, and then I said, "Nope, nope," and went back to spring cleaning. But I should have stopped the end of the last time I worked at this at a place where I knew what the next thing was going to be. That I didn't.
0: Well, and, and with regards to writing by the seat of your pants, have you, when you've had that kind of situation, have there been? Do you sometimes like write out both options or multiple options, and then see which one, you know? Uh, the proverbial taking the left train or the, you know, the left path or the right path.
1: Yes, I do that. That's a last resort because it's a lot of work. Right. But if I still can't decide, I will write out all three chapters and then see where I want to go.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, once my spring cleaning is done. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, and do you um, have a favorite of the novels or stories that you've written or is that, you know, the stan- the stereotypical picking your favorite child? kind of thing
1: no i my favorite is a book that actually did not do as well as it should have because it's not really science fiction it's a bio thriller but because my name was on it it was shelved with science fiction and science fiction fans would read it and say this isn't science fiction and thriller fans never found it so it's too bad because i like it it's called stinger and it's about genetically altered malaria um Actually, mosquitoes don't sting, they bite. But a book called Biter was not a good idea. So I called it Stinger.
0: In terms of how the genre is going today and and modern technology and all that, uh, do you feel it's easier or harder to write now than it was when you first started? I think
1: it's always about just as easy to write, but I think it's harder to get published right now. As... The publishing companies have consolidated into fewer and fewer of them, They, and they have massive overheads. They are less willing to stick with a writer if their first few books don't sell a lot of copies. I don't want to know any, say any names, but I know at least three very good writers who have been dropped by their publishers because they, although their publishers still think they're good writers, but they didn't sell enough copies. Publishers are looking for the blockbuster, the George R. R. Martin. And they're not as willing as they once were to stick with a writer as he or she develops the craft over three or four books, and then maybe has the big blockbuster. Um, One good thing about this, though, is it's left some space for small presses. And small presses are doing, I think, some really interesting work now. Small Beer, Tachyon, um, Angry Robot, they're, they're publishing really interesting work partly because they're willing to take more chances. They have less overhead and they can do this. On the other hand, it's not a bad time at all to be writing short stories because the online markets are proliferating and adding new places where you could sell stories.
0: I was gonna say the the self publishing, uh, while you know back in you know ten years ago that was you know something you kind of didn't mention that you if you were self published that meant you were you know it was almost a vanity press nowadays to self pub you know Will Wheaton self published his own you know book, and so it's not the sting of that has has kind of gone away with uh, Amazon and and with the internet and all that. Um, What do you think of, like, you know, for example, fan fiction? Are you a fan of fan fiction?
1: I have never (laughs) There's so much professional fiction out there that I want to read and don't get to that I I haven't read any fan fiction. I'm sorry. No, that's okay.
0: What do you geek out about? Everybody's geeky about something. And it doesn't have to be related to you being a writer or science fiction or anything like that.
1: Chess. I play a lot of chess, and I play it badly. I read books about chess. I read books about the history of chess. I can bore you about talking about the history of chess um, at great length, but I won't. And that's a pretty geeky pursuit.
0: What about it fascinates you?
1: I don't know. I mean, I'm not good at it, but I like it. I, I just do. I find it interesting and absorbing to try to look at a game and figure out what my opponent might be thinking and where he might be taking this and what I could do to counter it. When I lived in upstate New York, I belonged to a chess club. And again, I'm not particularly good. And because they are grouped into different ranks or boards, and I was at the bottom in the sixth board, I would frequently be playing nine- and 11-year-old prodigies who would sit across me slurping M&Ms between moves. And half of the time, they would beat me, which is very humbling. But I like it.
0: Was Has this been something that you've been fascinated with all your life, or was there, you know, one day you woke up and said, I'll try chess?
1: <laughs> no, I've always liked it, but at some periods in my life I've been more interested than others. When I was raising children and teaching and writing and um, running a house and all the rest of it, there wasn't much time for chess. But now that I'm a full-time writer and that my children are gone and have moved out, there's there's more time for this kind of thing. And yeah,
0: it's a pretty geeky pursuit. What do you feel are the current trends in the genre, do you think? What do you think is going to you know, happen in the next five years, in your personal opinion?
1: Oh, I really don't know, Angie. I've never been any good at predicting trends for anything. Um, that sounds strange, but for a science fiction writer, <laughs> well, I'll take it that For science, I can see some of the places it's going, but that's about the only, the only area. And I I never know. I had no idea Trump was going to be elected. I went around confidently telling everybody he was going to lose. I'm the wrong person for predicting the
0: future. (laughs) Is there something you wanted to talk about that we haven't?
1: Yeah, I will say one more thing about becoming a professional writer. In addition to the talent, you need to have a certain kind, some personality traits as well. I frequently teach talented students, who just then either publish a few stories and never don't, don't publish anymore. They don't publish at all. And there's a couple of traits you have to have if you're going to do this. First of all, you have to be persistent. If you were going to be a concert pianist, you would expect to practice a lot every day. And if you were going to be an NBA player, you wouldn't tell your coach you're not in the mood this week to practice. So you have to be persistent. And you have to be resilient because you're going to get rejected. Everybody gets rejected. I still get rejected. Everybody, George Martin, well, he may be not anymore, but he used to get rejected. I know because he told me so. Um, even after he had sold stuff. And you have to be able to take that kick in the gut, which is what it feels like, and pick yourself up and move on. The publisher, um, Pocket Books, which was an imprint assignment Simon Schuster that published my first novel, turned down my second. They didn't like it. And I thought I was in. And now here I was, not there I was rejected. But you have to be able to pick yourself up and go on. And the third trait that you have to have is you have to be willing to learn and grow. Occasionally, I'll get a student in class who belongs to the um, change one comma of my story and you die. And all of us can learn by being open-minded and listening to critiques. We don't have to accept everything that critics and reviewers and editors say. But if we can consider it in an open-minded way, that's how we grow and how our writing improves. So again, I have seen writers that have talent for writing, but they lack one, two, or three of those personality traits, and it doesn't work. And they just don't write.
0: Awesome. Well, that was going to be my next question: was whether you know your one piece of advice. <laughs> so you <laughs> My stole... one
1: piece of advice would be keep at it <laughs> and roll with, And it's going to hurt at times, and keep at it. And because then I did... again. Go ahead in a professional anything has a usually has an apprentice
0: period. And then I did come up with another uh, kind of process question. As a writer myself, um, I've had characters wanna do stuff that I had no idea was coming. Has that happened to you? Do your characters take oh, life in their own?
1: I love that. I just love that.
0: Do you, I once uh, got into an argument with
1: Connie Willis on a panel. She's a very dear friend. And she said I said that I really just like it when the characters take over the story. And she said, wait, 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 Nancy. They don't take over the story. They only do what you tell them to do. You created them. And all I could say was, Connie, I know, but it doesn't feel like that. It feels like they're taking over the story. And I say run with
0: it and see where it goes. Do you have arguments with your characters? Sometimes. I fell in love with a couple of them. <laughs> That's a wrap with my interview with Nancy Cress. You can find out more information about her over on our website, nancycrest.com. A link to her website is in the article for this podcast, which is at angiefsutton.com. Thanks to Nancy for taking the time to talk to me about all this. Thanks also to John Palisano of the Horror Writers Association for his plug. You can hear his interview in episode 24 covering this year's LA Festival of Books. Next up is my podcast covering the 2017 Stan Lee's Los Angeles Comic-Con back in October. Until next time, Stay geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler Sutton. The theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Pitnickin, available via the Free Music Archive. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial share-alike license. More information about the podcast is available on AngieFSutton.com.